Okay, folks, we are back for another panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. And it's a pants-ripping episode. This is something that is at least six months in the making. Six months? This is a lifetime in the making. This is something that we have danced around forever. And I think it was finally time for us to talk about George Lucas. George Lucas is somebody who's had an indelible stamp on the childhood of an entire generation. He's somebody who has a real notoriety, and I could say even an infamy. Just drop his name on any internet message board or any congregation of three or more people who enjoy nerdy things, and you're going to get an opinion. I would wager that George Lucas is quite possibly the most recognizable writer-director name in the world. I think that's pretty fair. I mean, he's up there with Hitchcock, but Hitchcock doesn't have people who ever really screamed at him or turned on him in this way. Hitchcock never did a prequel to, like, Vertigo. (laughs) There was never a point where anyone turned on Orson Welles this way, aside from maybe Hearst. (laughs) It's really interesting to look at this question of how this man's legacy is going to play out, how his work affected us. And this fan backlash that is so palpable that it's sustained itself for well over a decade after the last movie came out. And what I find really interesting about it is we're going to talk about what that backlash really is, why he received it, and whether he deserves the abuse that he gets. So buckle up, kids. Let's do this. Out of the briny depths of the internet comes a comic book podcast so powerful it cannot be contained by a single continent. Mike and Paul save the universe! I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Paul Root. If you're an unsatisfied comics fan, we want to help you find better comics. And if you've never picked up a comic before in your life, we want to help you find what could be your new favorite thing. On Mike and Paul Save the Universe, we love the bejesus out of comics. And so should you. Find us online at MikeAndPaul.com. 1937. To keep the increasingly threatening Third Reich from achieving a supernatural doomsday weapon, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt secretly turns to soldier of fortune, adventurer, and World War I hero, Ace Kilroy. Ace Kilroy is a serialized webcomic that launched on Halloween night 2011. The co-creation of writer Rob Kelly and artist Dan O'Connor. It was nominated for a 2012 Eagle Award for Favorite Webcomic, and Kelly won a 2012 Philadelphia Geek Award for Comic Book Writer of the Year. Ace Kilroy features adventure, horror, mystery, political intrigue, and romance. Join the fight against evil. Visit acekilroy.com. I'm part of a generation of kids who grew up on the works of George Lucas. Since he gave us Star Wars in 1977, he's been a cultural legend to anyone under the age of 50 in this country. I can't be the only kid who pretended to be Han Solo or Luke Skywalker and get into imaginary sword fights and laser battles with my friends. Growing up with his movies has become a sort of cultural common denominator. Star Wars was the one piece of geek culture that everyone loved before it was cool to openly love geeky things. 
We love George Lucas and his work so much that we excuse the spottier things he did, like Howard the Duck or the Star Wars Holiday Special. But something happened to our perception of him in the mid to late 90s. In 1997, he put the original Star Wars back into theaters full of new computer-generated special effects and deleted scenes, including a number of changes that really pissed off a lot of longtime fans. Then, two years later, it happened. He released a trilogy of prequels to his Star Wars films so polarizing that the same people who used to hold him up as one of geekdom's holiest saints into one of the biggest whipping boys for devout nerds everywhere. Before we go on, let's get a couple things out of the way and set some ground rules. First, the Star Wars prequels are complete and utter shit. I'm sure we're all in agreement here, but this panel is not going to be dominated by a new takedown of The Phantom Menace. This is well-trodden ground. If you want to see the best dissection of why they completely fail as movies, I recommend the feature-length reviews that the guys at Red Letter Media did. Do it. They're brilliant. Watch them. You'll thank me. Second, George Lucas did not ruin anyone's childhood. He made some bad movies that disappointed you because you grew up loving his older movies. What this panel is going to be about is that fan turnaround. Lucas's movies and their legacy. Why geeks turned on him and whether he deserves the abuse he gets. So joining this panel for this trial-slash-autopsy is Ryan Chaddock, creator of the Pantheon live-action role-playing game. Welcome to Radio vs. the Martians, Ryan. Hi. And Todd Maxfield Matsumoto, longtime Star Wars aficionado and composer of the Radio vs. the Martians theme music. Welcome, Todd. Hey, glad to be here. And finally, the wonder boy to my Captain Sunshine. Welcome back, Casey Doran. So before we get to the crucifixion portion of the podcast, I want to talk about the passion that Lucas's creations inspire. (laughs) The passion of Lucas. It'll feel like that soon. (laughs) We know that people wouldn't get as mad at this guy if there wasn't this equally strong positive set of memories that are attached to the things he created. Todd, I want to start with you. When did you first encounter the work of George Lucas? Well, I wasn't quite three years old. Star Wars was in the theater, New Hope at the time, and everybody was talking about it. It was everywhere. Couldn't wait to see it. We went to the theater to see it after waiting in line. You know, that hot summer, there's only a few theaters in town. And halfway through, we had to leave because I wouldn't stop making Chewbacca noises and laser noises, (laughs) and uh, I just wouldn't behave. So uh, a few months later, you know, of course, unlike now, movies had those long runs in the theater, and Star Wars was in the theater, what seemed like 40 years. And, uh, you know, I promised to behave. We went back, and I got to see the whole thing and was able to see that Death Star Destroyed. Star Wars was in theaters for well over a year when it was first released. Hmm. I remember seeing an old movie poster that was celebrating its one-year anniversary of being in the theater. So, Ryan, where did you first encounter George Lucas? I still have a memory from 1983. I was three years old of us going to see Return of the Jedi, and I fell asleep through almost the whole movie. Um, (laughs) But I was so excited about it that when I woke up, I was mad that I'd slept through it. I don't really understand how I remember so much from being that young, but I remember Star Wars was already, even as a toddler, a a big part of my life. Ryan and I were in the same grade, and so we were exactly the same age. Return of the Jedi was, I believe, the first movie that I ever saw. It was either between that and one of the re-releases of 101 Dalmatians, and they were in the same theater. But I very distinctly remember only one thing about it is that I had to go to the bathroom like in the first 10 minutes of the movie, and I came back in, couldn't find my parents, and I was watching the skiff scene, the fight on the skiff over the Sarlacc pit. I was like so amazed because I think that was actually the very first Star Wars movie that I'd seen. Sadly to say, because of that reason, Jedi is my favorite of the three. Clearly inferior in lots of ways, but I have such vivid memories of the uh, skiff guard with the ponytail. That guy was badass. 
I know at least three people who have hit themselves in the chin with a diving board while trying to <laughs> duplicate what Luke did in that movie. I, I had one person that I used to work with in high school at a movie theater, and he was actually proud of the scar that was on his chin of turning around and trying to push himself back up. But all he managed to do was basically clothesline himself. <laughs> I didn't actually see any of the original Star Wars movies in the theaters until 1997. Oh, wow. My first encounter with Star Wars, the movie was Return of the Jedi. That was the first one I saw. And I remember being blown away by it. I mean, this is a movie that's full of robots and monsters and sword fights. And there's a cowboy whose best friend is Bigfoot. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's spaceships and stuff is blowing up. It was just amazing. It was like everything that I loved as a kid thrown into one movie. And I think it really coalesced for me. My favorite childhood memory of Star Wars was waking up on Christmas morning, which for kids is like the Super Bowl, (laughs) and seeing all the Star Wars toys, including the Millennium Falcon at the bottom of the tree. Damn. So excited. It had like the speeder bike from Return of the Jedi. I always wanted one of those. Oh, it was incredible. (laughs) I was so happy. Do you have one, Todd? Do you own one? Uh, Yeah, I I do. I have one of the reissues from the 90s, uh, the Power of the Force line. Ah. I I gave away all of my toys as a kid, uh, actually put them out on the curb for the trash, if you can believe it. Oh. Um, You know, in the urge to grow up at the age of seven or eight or whatever it was. But I had the original Falcon as well, which mm. the Power of the Force one was a, pretty much an exact remake of it. This is totally betraying us as 80s kids because I can't tell whether or not the best toy that was ever made was the Millennium Falcon toy or the G.I. Joe aircraft carrier. Oh, nobody had that. <laughs> a friend of mine had that. And I yeah. got to tell you, besides being huge and expensive and no, no way to scale, the Falcon beat it hands down. <laughs> Falcon had so much cooler stuff. That was one of the things that made the Lucas Empire different is that they really got on the ground floor with toys in a way that no other movie ever did. There was a huge line of toys, not just for all the main characters, which you'd sometimes get through some third party company would jump in and do toys of like Superman or Batman. But it was never like the company itself was involved in it. They would just license it out and take the check. But with Star Wars, not only would you get figures for Han and Leia and Chewie and Luke and everybody, but you'd actually get... Snaggletooth. Exactly. You'd get all those weird guys that were in the cantina, the guys (laughs) who didn't even have a a line of dialogue. So it was always kind of fun because if you were one of those actors and you were even an extra in a Star Wars movie, that was your best chance of getting an action figure of yourself as an extra. But for me, it was the common denominator status that everyone seemed to share a love of Star Wars. And it was at a time where, you know, you're in junior high, high school, where, I don't know, in our generation, it was not cool to be a geek the way it is now. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That if you betrayed the fact that you liked things like science fiction, fantasy superheroes, that was kind of an invitation to an ass kicking. But Star Wars was sort of exempt from that. That was the one thing that it was okay to like and okay to like openly and passionately. And that's what I really get to is that one of the reasons that people get so angry at Lucas nowadays is, again, because we tie our memories to Lucas. We tie our memories to Star Wars. I want to ask you guys, have you managed to rewatch the original movies lately? And if so, how well have they aged? Do we let the nostalgia goggles of our youth color these films or are they really as good? Do they hold up? I think they hold up. New Hope definitely has, you know, the more 70s hairstyles and, and it has that 70s film look to it. And it definitely has a lot of commonality with the films of the 70s. Jedi, I think, has the 80s hairstyles, like Mark Hamill's Lego hair. Oh, the worst hair in film history, I think. So you have some things like that that are a little strange. There's the diving board stunt you were talking about. 
is edited really weird when I look at it now. It's very slow, and that's not at all how I recall compared to what we see now in film. It's like, wow, why are these guys just standing around waiting for him to grab the lightsaber? It takes like several seconds. But Empire seems ageless. Yeah. Empire, the one in the middle there, just doesn't seem to be out of any particular decade. And which I think Empire, when they did the special editions, had the least amount of changes. Right. That makes sense. Hmm. Well, there was the least amount I think you could do to Empire. I mean, Empire was the one that probably had the least understandably cut scenes taken out of it. I mean, you look at a lot of the scenes in A New Hope and there is stuff that I'm like, yeah, I can totally see why you cut that out. And you don't really need the Jabba scene because everything you need to know from that scene, you got from the Greedo scene. Right. right. And, and even the scene with Biggs that they cut out at the end. I've always felt felt like one of those conversations that you have with someone you knew in high school that you randomly run into and you don't really have anything to say to them, but you just both kind of stand there like, oh, hey. Fighting the Empire now. Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good to see you, Biggs. So, um, yeah, we're, we're going to go blow up the Death Star now. All right. I was really happy that, uh, I was thrilled that Luke didn't amputate first in Empire. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those crazy things is you look at how science fiction looked before Star Wars and then after Star Wars. Occasionally you'd get sort of an odd duck like 2001 where you have a movie that was science fiction that they did put really high production values into. That was really rare. It's notable to sort of at least call out the lineage about visual effects. George Lucas is the one who basically created ILM. He was the one who sought out the team to get it. And the first person he asked was Doug Trumbull, who, as you both may know, was the guy who was part of the special effects team that created basically that whole realm of special effects for 2001 Space Odyssey. And then he went on to form his own effects company that did Blade Runner and then uh, another string, and I think they went out of business in the 90s. But Trumbull was asked first to head up ILM, which is now like the largest and most prestigious visual effects house in the world. And then when Douglas Trumbull had other engagements, and then he asked John Dykstra, who is now considered the man who's the founding of ILM. So part of it is Lucas did roll forward this juggernaut of visual effects, but they were still tapping on the shoulders of giants of people like Douglas Trumbull and the team that would eventually go on to do Star Trek The Motion Picture. I think you're absolutely right. I was watching 2001 just two weeks ago with my son, and you know the interiors of the Discovery, they look almost exactly like the Tanta 4's interior. Hmm. Just that brilliant white and the boxy, you know, what we think of as that Kubrick sci-fi. There's a lot of that in A New Hope. It's like studios realized that science fiction was something worth spending money on wasn't something that was disposable for stupid children and that there were people who wanted to... <laughs> the, wanted the stupid to, children. The, <laughs> Not the smart ones, the stupid well, ones. Well, stupid children need the most attention. <laughs> they realized that this was something that if they poured money into it, could reach a wide audience, could reach a mainstream audience, and they could make that money back and more so. And I think we see that now because every science fiction movie, even the new Star Trek movie, has touches of Star Wars all over it. Sure does. And like you mentioned with ILM, for at least 15 years, if you had a big special effects movie, George Lucas's thumbprint was on it Mm -hmm. because his special effects house was the game in town for getting high quality special effects in your movies. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter if you were Terminator 2, name your action film, name your sci-fi film, name your fantasy film. If you wanted computer generation, you wanted uh, dinosaurs that looked real, you went to George Lucas's company. You wanted midgets who could transform themselves into goats and then into old women? (laughs) Wait, no, I don't know how that worked. 
Well, I think you're exactly right. Skywalker Sound, THX certification for theaters, Mm -hmm. and ILM. Lucas created an empire outside of his film influence that he was making money indirectly off of nearly every movie released. I think the special effects are a big deal. Obviously, it was revolutionary at the time. But I think that with a poor story or a story that wasn't so clearly inspired by Joseph Campbell myth, it wouldn't have been as impressed upon that generation and every generation since. I think it's difficult to imagine someone who was a bit more cynical in terms of just writing some kind of sci-fi that everybody's just going to buy, making such an impression on world culture the way Star Wars has. Star Wars is definitely one of those movies that the themes are universal enough that you could be from a different culture and cultural differences between them and America or Britain, however you're looking at the lens of the production from, they would be able to recognize it because it's got some pretty abstract and universal themes. I saw clips of the trash compactor scene. I mean, that's an awful looking scene. (laughs) The monster is terrible. That is terrible special effects. And I remember as a child in the 80s thinking that too. I mean, that was not inspiring, despite the fact that all the lightsabers of the spaceships are amazing. But there's still parts of it that were terrible. And it wasn't that. I mean, on some level, it was the story. I mean... I don't know. I think we shouldn't underestimate how blown away people actually were by the special effects. Like, sure, they'd seen 2001, but that's a really slow, deliberate movie. Most space movies were super slow. Some of them didn't even have sound in space. Like, the mix between, like, this crazy soundscapes that were created. Ben Burt, the guy who created basically every sound effect that we recognize as Star Wars now, as well as ILM and John Williams, mashing those all together... The practical effects were silly, but the special effects were amazing, were groundbreaking. But I don't think they've lost their charm. I mean, a lot of the effects are dated, and sometimes you can see the stop motion. But I think that, like you said, if they didn't have that story that you grabbed onto, then it wouldn't have survived. I think that this is a question about every special effects movie that there is. If, for instance, you look at Avatar... The real question is, is in 15 years, those special effects will look dated. As wonderful and mind-blowing as they are now, there's going to come a time when the special effects in that movie look cheesy. And when that day comes, how is the movie going to hold up? Because a movie that has great special effects and no story will not hold up in 10 years because at that point, the story, the characters, and every other element that's supposed to grab you is not going to be engaging. And I always Mm -hmm. use the example of Planet of the Apes, and I love Planet of the Apes. I mean, they created the Makeup Oscar Award for Planet of the Apes. This was not something that they ever did before. And Planet of the Apes had, at its time, mind-blowing special effects. They're dated now. It's still my favorite movie because it's still a movie that has engaging characters, engaging story, that outlive and transcend the special effects and visual elements of it. And I think that Star Wars has that too. That's why we're still fans of a movie that came out in 77, 80, and 83. Despite the fact that Lucas is really well known for pushing special effects forward, pushing sound quality forward, pushing all of these technical achievements forward, his movies are really about nostalgia. You look at Star Wars, and it's a repackaging of a lot of the Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon-style movie serials that we used to see. And samurai flicks, and hot rod movies, all of those things, sort of. Yeah, he's grabbing to the past there. I mean, American Graffiti is clearly a nostalgia picture. But the same thing can be said of Indiana Jones, where Indiana Jones is one of those action serials. What you do is you repackage it, you give it better production values, give it a modern sensibility, and you create a new product out of old parts. And I think that you see that even, it was an attempt to do that with Red Tails, which was Hmm. trying to take an old World War II style war movie and then recreate it with a modern sensibility and put twists on it. 
Whether he did that successfully is up in the air, but I think that nostalgia is always a big part of his movies. With his newer stuff, I really wonder if he lost the core things that he was drawing Star Wars from in the first place, that he forgot that this was a fun Saturday matinee movie serial made big, made large, made, made modern. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm willing to try and defend the prequels if you want me to <laughs> i think we do <laughs> there's okay. hesitation in that voice yeah. no i because i have this argument about every week it seems like so <laughs> i'm not the biggest fan of them possible but maybe i am in that i'm the only person i know willing to defend them i think that even episode one has its moments i hate to take it apart like this if you're just looking at pieces i mean episode one has the the lightsaber fight at the end it's easily one of the two best lightsaber fights in the series sure i mean hands down and it's worth watching just for that so i think it has elements i guess part of the thing for me is that you know when i watch it it's got awful graphics by today's standards and even at the time we thought they were pretty cartoony but the original star wars trilogy did too i have sort of cheesy stuff going on so really i think that we need to apply that lens to the prequels and be like well okay what about the story here is the story of the fall of darth vader is it an interesting story is it it certainly goes against, in terms of the way it uses a protagonist, it goes against the way most Hollywood does things. Hmm. It's really about the building of a monster, you know, of a, of a villain for another series. So in that sense, it's kind of like Empire Strikes Back in that it's really just set up. Is that innovative, in a sense? Is it strange and useful? But no, but there have been good Hollywood movies that have great villains or the origin stories of great villains. And I don't think there are many people that would seriously go to bat to defend the way George Lucas went about making Anakin Skywalker into a monster was done with any type of nuance, subtlety, or even logic. I mean, I think <laughs> I think maybe it was bad acting, or maybe or maybe it was writing, or maybe it was both. But you, yeah. at the end, I just don't believe that the guy who who becomes the person who kills billions of people on a planet, but starts off as the cute little ruddy-haired boy who is good at fixing things, that they made that transition well enough. Mm. That's always the problem is I don't think they ever really got the characters that in a lot of ways, the biggest problems with the prequels is that it, one, it feels like nobody wants to be there. <laughs> it feels like everyone is sort of pissed off that they're forced to be going through the motions. Nobody <laughs> likes each other. Even when they are there, there's sort of a cold roboticism to it. There's a non-organic feel to the prequels. And I think that really hurts them then. In the original trilogy, they really were in a forest. They really were in a desert. Mm. And I think that there was a grit there that I think grounds a lot of the fantastical elements. Mm. But also, I think that Lucas was in a position where he had other writers and other people contributing and actors were contributing more. Right. Where I think he had legend status this time around. Yeah. And I don't think anyone was willing to say no to him. Yeah. I think that's the real problem here. And I think that's what we should be talking about is that Lucas is a different person now. He does not have people saying no, and he doesn't have a budgetary constraint in the way that he did then. Budgets and deadlines are really what make people come up with innovative things. We've gotten into the question of these prequels. I think that the last time I saw so many, you know, the truth is there wasn't a last time that so many people got so excited and worked up for a movie. So... Just thrilled wait, to wait. be... Wait, wait, you mean people weren't as excited about the premiere of Battlefield Earth? Come on, Mike. <laughs> Aside from maybe Tom Cruise, no. Um, I look at the Star Wars trilogy, and there is such a high set of expectations. Sure. And people wanted to recapture something from their youth. 
people wanted to share something from their youth with their kids who are now coming to the theater and going, I want you to feel what I felt when I first went to the theater. And then everything fell apart. <laughs> I, I don't think the sense of outrage and fan disappointment can really be overstated because it's gotten so cartoonish. And I guess the real question is, are people overreacting or are these movies really as bad as the hyperbole seems to say? I want to hear Todd answer this. He's the, he's quiet. Here's, he might be the biggest super fan out of all four of us. I really want to know what you feel about the prequel and the backlash. Well, I got to tell you, I waited 10 and a half hours in line to see Phantom Menace. Mm. Um, and by the time I got in there, you know, besides sitting out in the sun all day and feeling a little odd, um, <laughs> <laughs> it, when the movie began, I don't remember, I don't think there were any previews before it. And when the movie began, I wasn't sure that it was, and I'm not being facetious here, I wasn't sure that it was the movie. Mm-hmm. I thought that it might be, you guys remember when the Matrix sequel, the first Matrix sequel came out, Revolutions or whatever? Mm. Re- Reloaded. They had the the assistant director did those soda commercials with the agent with the same set and it was the same lighting. It was supposed to feel like the Matrix and it didn't. It felt like, you know, a simulacra of the Matrix, (laughs) coincidentally. And uh, (laughs) that's what those opening scenes of The Phantom Menace felt like to me. I kept, I literally was waiting for the real movie to start and it took, I think it's. T-3PO, the protocol droid that's serving the little tea drinks to the Jedi uh, there, it took that scene when the, when the gas comes in, I realized no, this is it. This is this weird feeling. <laughs> you were hoping that it would be a Japanese Sencha commercial and there would be like like Japanese and then yeah. like a crazy it would be over and then the real movie starts. I really thought that it was some sort of, yeah, some sort of promotional thing. It didn't feel you know, promotional things don't feel like a motion picture. This didn't feel like a motion picture to me. Mm. Um, but you know what? All right, okay, I just have to, you know, I've been out in the sun all day. I'm over to the side of the theater because it's packed, and I'm pretty close to the screen, so let's give it a shot. I saw it 16 more times that summer. (laughs) (laughs) And... And my conclusion after seeing it 16 times is, I really like that lightsaber battle. (laughs) It's so funny. I fell asleep. Me and one of the friends I was there with fell asleep during the pod racing scene and the first time we had seen it. I always fall asleep during the pod racing scene. It's such an an amazing feat of special effects, but such a boring 12 minutes of cinema that you're just like... For me, it's like watching my friend play a video game at the arcade for how long? <laughs> and I would probably get bored and fall asleep. It doesn't really... It is It is special effects, but um, I guess to me it's not that special. It felt like the movie bent over backwards to get it in there. Like it wasn't a necessary scene where you have this element of danger. We need to do this or the stakes or that. And it felt like they manufactured a reason to have it in there. They came up with this idea, and it sounded great, but we don't know how to put it in the movie, so let's have this elaborate scheme slash bet involving Anakin's freedom. But they it makes less sense the more you try to explain it or think it out. You know what they should have done? What What is the game that Han Solo won the Millennium Falcon from Lando? What was the game called? Sabbath. They should have won a ship or the money or whatever of playing game of Sabic and then like them cheating, reading someone's mind or like flipping a car with the force or something. And then it just made it like three minutes long. And then like them walking out and woo, Jar Jar being throwing paper money in the air. That would be that would be much better. I think almost anything would be much better. (laughs) For me, what this goes back to is what both Ryan and Mike sort of alluded to earlier. 
Mike was asking about the nostalgia that Lucas has done on all of his best works that the prequels lacked. And Ryan was talking about George Lucas is a different person now than he was when he made those in a different set of circumstances entirely in his life. I've thought a lot about this, and I think Lucas tried very hard to put in the things that he thought were crowd pleasers, the things he mm. thought people wanted. That's not something that a lot of people think. A lot of people think Lucas made the movies he wanted to make. I don't think he really wanted to make those. I think he was doing Star Wars prequels to reinvigorate Star Wars, which had become pretty quiet at that point. There wasn't a lot of Star Wars merch at Suncoast or wherever you were going <laughs> right. at the time, you know. Um, That's to a reinvigorate the that. past right there. Right, Suncoast. right. <laughs> <laughs> to reinvigorate that, to make himself viable in the special effects industry again, because as we talked about before, he had a monopoly with ILM. Suddenly you have a lot of other special effects houses coming up and doing more innovative things. So I think he was trying very hard to put those things in that people wanted, but he wasn't thinking about the things that he wanted when he made the original trilogy and I think what would have made that a lot better is to have any voice at all any sort of consultant that could tell him what made Star Wars special to people I mean I think the test of whether he's sort of a different person now and kind of has lost it is the Indiana Jones movie the new one right right I mean it's a totally different universe and and he had a chance to do something good there and it is like the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> is it really that bad? I know that it's one of these things where it's fashionable to sort of dog on Lucas but, now. But you have to admit, when, when we basically were updating idioms based on the stupid shit in that movie, when <laughs> Jump the Shark has been replaced by Nuke the Fridge, you know you've done something horrible if a 35-year-old idiom that's supposed to mean when a plot goes horribly wrong and it's so stupid that it's unbelievable, you update the idiom. <laughs> well, this is where I find myself in the weird position to kind of defend Lucas. Yeah, that was dumb, and yeah, that was unrealistic, but is that any different than face-melting ghosts? Is that any different than jumping out of a plane with a raft and surviving? The thing for me when I was watching that movie was it wasn't just one thing that was crazy. It was like every single thing was just stupid. <laughs> the monkey swinging, Tarzan swinging, and fighting swords across jeeps, hoods of jeeps. Right, yeah, <laughs> and the aliens themselves and, you know, the ninjas and, I don't know, the whole thing was just crazy. There were ninjas in Indiana Jones 4? <laughs> South American there, ninjas. Uh, South American ninjas, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to me, there's, there is a lot of stupidity, and I'll agree with Mike to a degree, to a certain extent, that the Indiana Jones movies have a lot of crazy, they have a lot of stupid stunts, and we love them. Um, but for me, what made that movie atrocious was the sheer vacancy in it. So as jam-packed as it is, it's jam-packed of nothing. There just seems to be nothing really happening, and it, it had mm-hmm. that similar feel to Phantom Menace to me of, is this a movie? Let me put it this way. I don't really like the trilogy, the prequel trilogy that much. I think that's clear from my earlier comments. <laughs> my kids know them by heart. Right. They see them all the time, and they have costumes from those movies. And I don't tell them about the fourth Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably the most important piece here, when, I, when all of the butt hurt. Late 20s, uh, 30, 40-year-olds talk about how much they were violated sexually by George Lucas's betrayal, is that when you ask my nephews what their favorites are, it's one of the prequel trilogy. When you ask them what their favorite character is, if it's not Obi-Wan, which it usually is, it's Jar Jar. The things that drive us up the wall are the things that kids respond. That piece at least was made for them. As silly as the Gungans are to people who knew the seriousness, the coolness, the darkness of Empire Strikes Back, Jar Jar is just as magical to them. That's something I really want to get into, Todd, is that your kids were born after these movies came out, and Star Wars to them has always been six movies rather than three. How do they feel about things like Jar Jar and the elements that we all shake our heads at, that the internet explodes over? 
They don't care at all about Jar Jar. It never comes up. They don't seem to have any ill feelings. So They'd... forgettable. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's forgettable to them. They like the characters that I tend to lean toward, I, I, I think, and I'm probably influencing them in that extent. But I'll tell you, I'm involved with a, a costuming group for under 18-year-olds as well that uh, is global. And there's an application that the parents send in for the kids with a questionnaire, and it asks them things like favorite Star Wars character. And there are some Jar Jars, but not very many. Darth Maul, on the other hand. Oh, he's everywhere. Huge. Right. Now, he's all over the merchandise, too. I mean, he's one of those characters that people gravitate towards. You still see Darth Maul appear on merchandise. You still see clone troopers appear on merchandise. You don't see Jar Jar anywhere. It feels mm-hmm. like Lucas picked up on the backlash and had him appear in the movies less and less and right. less as they went on. But there was an interesting piece in a movie I saw recently, a documentary called The People versus George Lucas, mm-hmm. where a fan points out that the first scene that Jar Jar appears in, in Attack of the Clones, he walks in he looks right at the camera. And smiles. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I think he fingers the camera as well. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of fans took that as a fuck you. That he's like, yeah, I'm still here. What are you going to do about it? I remember noticing that when it happened. I remember shouting about it. <laughs> like, it was clear. That's what that meant. <laughs> and he's a CGI character, so it's not like it's an actor accidentally spiking the lens and looking right at you. Right, right. That's intentional. Well, speaking of intentional, we should bring this up because it's an important piece of why there's ire about George Lucas. And obviously changing the original trilogy and then also trying to have all of the original Technicolor prints of the three Star Wars movies confiscated and destroyed and refusing to allow a non-specialized versions of the original trilogy in the National Film Archive. And also with every iterative change for re-releasing the the trilogy, there are sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle changes that as we go along further, they are more and more clearly fuck you. You cannot read them any other way. You can't read the, why does it seem so amazing that they made an Ewok blink? Like Han shot first, of course, you know, is the match that lit the fire. But having the no put into the end of Return of the Jedi. Why? People hate it. There's a legacy of memes around how stupid that sample of audio was. There's different kinds of changes. There's the changes that I wish I could do this back then, but I can do it now, like blinking Ewoks. And then there's things that are just kind of like, I don't trust my audience to understand what's going on, like the no, as if the swelling music and him looking back and forth with his son getting fried by the monster face man isn't (laughs) enough to say that he's conflicted. (laughs) And then there's the changes like Han shooting first versus Greedo shooting first that change character arcs, that change the scene's tone, that I think are the real culprits here. You look at that scene. Han Solo owes money to a mobster, and a bounty hunter comes to collect it. And to escape, Han Solo shoots him under a table, in a bar, and walks away. And this is to illustrate what his character is. This is a guy who's a mercenary, that even to the degree that he gets caught up in the Imperial uh, plot and he's in a position to save the princess, all he cares about is his own neck and his money. The minute they get Princess Leia out of her cell, he's talking about his reward. Where's my money? I'm not doing this for free. And the whole point of this is that he's a guy who only thinks about himself. So when he does come back and rescues Luke at the end of the movie, it means something. Mm -hmm. It's part of his character arc. And by trying to soften what a bad person he is at the beginning of the movie, by having Greedo shoot him first. And by the way, you can't hit somebody across a table, (laughs) a trained bounty hunter. And also him shooting makes no sense in that part of the conversation. Right. 
he didn't get the money yet. He doesn't even know if Han has the money on him. So he could have just murdered a guy for no reason in the middle of a bar and gotten nothing. And his boss is going to be pissed. But you <laughs> you look at that scene and it hurts Han's character. It hurts the surprise of him coming back. And it lessens that. And for no reason. Well, I think, like Ryan was saying, Lucas is a different person at this point. I mean, who wouldn't be? He's a monster! <laughs> but he's, he's obviously concerned about, he realizes how many children are watching this and how many children idolize Han Solo. I, I suppose he's thinking about the ethical, you know, that's what we're talking about, is Han Solo is not ethical early on. He's a smuggler. He's an outlaw in every sense of the word, a selfish outlaw. He's a criminal. Right. And so I think Lucas is worried about the ethics of that. And he changed that, I think, similar to how he's worried about the ethics of the Sarlacc looking like a giant toothed asshole and he made it look like Little Shop of Horrors instead. (laughs) Well, this is a point that I really wanted to bring up. On the eve of the 1999 release of Phantom Menace, sci-fi author David Brin, he wrote this piece in Salon. And he was initially boycotting going to see the movie because he read about what the the movie was about. And he, of course, had his own critiques being a sci-fi author about Star Wars in general, about the universe. And he was basically saying, I don't understand why Star Wars should be as popular because the universe in which Star Wars is based, the characters, the, the scenarios and situations are not a good ethical or moral example for the 20th century. And he lists some of these things or what are the bill of golds that are being sold between the frames of the Star Wars trilogy? One, that elites have an inherent right to arbitrary rule. Common citizens needn't be consulted and they may only choose which elite to follow. Two, that good elites should act on their subjective whims without evidence, argument, or accountability. Three, any amount of sin can be forgiven if you're important enough. Darth Vader. Four, true leaders are born. It's genetic. The right to rule is inherited. And five, justified human emotions can turn a good person evil. So when I think about all of those things, I think that's a recipe for creating Anakin Skywalker-like psychopaths. This is like the medieval stories about knights being noble and whatever. But these are, at the very beginning, the first 10 minutes of the People vs. George Lucas, MC Frontalot, the nerdcore rapper, goes on and says, Star Wars is the center of my moral universe. What kind of fucking moral universe are you talking about? A moral universe where everyone who's not, this goes back to our zombie conversation, everyone who's not the awesome dudes who have great athletic ability and the ability to fight are dead, are pawns, are scum, basically. So that sounds like a gauntlet being thrown down. <laughs> um, I, I would tend to disagree with you there, Casey. Mm. I think that the franchise centers on the Jedi. And the Jedi ethic is really weird. And so maybe you're right. But I mean, the Jedi ethic revolves around the idea of purging yourself of emotion and thinking rationally. To me, that's a decent ethic that I think is forgotten in most of action movies. I think that Star Wars is pretty much the only franchise that says, hey, getting mad because somebody used the typical trope where your wife was murdered or your girlfriend was kidnapped. The only response isn't just going out and murdering the bastards. <laughs> Every single movie shouldn't have that same plot. That The good guys should be people that are saying, no, wait, 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 wait. We, we need to stop and think. What you have to think about is who is the real protagonist of Star Wars? If you look at it as all six, I think, you know, you could say maybe it's Anakin, but I really stand by it being Luke. And when you think about Luke, while Luke becomes a Jedi, he's a new kind of Jedi, isn't he? He disobeys what the Jedi tell him, that weird Mm. ethic, you know, that lack of attachment. You, You know, let your friends suffer. Strategically, that's a bad move, right? And he follows his heart. And not only does he follow his heart and make mistakes, but he follows his heart and he redeems his father 
He saves the universe. And I have a problem with that, too. So Darth Vader can somehow be redeemed as long as he recognizes how how beautiful his two twin kids were. The billions of people that he killed, oh, it's all forgiven. (laughs) I also, too, as far as a plot device, a, a type of narrative device about genocide, it's really fucked up how bad Star Wars is about dealing with Jedis going in and killing younglings in the Jedi Temple. That's awful, but... The hundreds of millions and or billions of people that die when the Death Star goes and destroys a planet, nary give a mention. Obi-Wan has some heart palpitations, and then that's all, that's all we need to know about it. Well, I don't think that the characters were given enough time to react to it. I mean, because things happen so fast in the first movie. I mean, the minute she sees her planet blown up, she gets sent back to her cell. So it's not like we get a chance to deal with that because already she has to protect the next planet. Right. She has but to protect the rebel is, base. I, I get that. But what I'm saying is that there is a redemption for Anakin Skywalker. Why? The case for me is that I have what I like to refer to as selective continuity. <laughs> that <laughs> uh, in the end, I don't want to focus on things that I hate that much. That the prequels are shit. And it's taken me a long time to let go of that. Hmm. But now that I have, I just watch the originals and I just pretend that the prequel trilogy just doesn't exist. Hmm. I watch it with that. I pretend that the Anakin that was is a totally different person who isn't this whiny person who's constantly complaining about his boss that is making weird offhanded references to fascism (laughs) that's murdering children. (laughs) I... I just ignore that and I just say okay I'm going to cauterize the wounds on both ends of this trilogy and just enjoy it for what it is because that's what I fell in love with growing up. I'm not going to let these other things into it that just make it worse. Mm. So I guess when I say how can he be redeemed it's because the him of the past to me is probably a very different person. But even if it's bad it just seems to me that we're talking about a difference between vengeance and justice here. And the Jedi serve justice, not vengeance. So if, if you know, if somebody's like, "Okay, I surrender. I'm sorry," you know, you don't have to lop the guy's head off. You know, he was already dying anyway. I mean, redemption is just so tenuous in that ending scene anyway. Hmm. The only way we know he's truly redeemed is he turns into a blue glowy. <laughs> I mean, what does that mean? That's a metaphysical thing. That's not really a philosophical thing. Hmm. Well, all I'll say is that it is disappointing that when George Lucas went back to rewrite the prequel trilogy and added a very, very strong and perplexing, totally confounding set of B and C plots about the politics in the Republic, none of that makes any sense. None of none of that as a motivation for anything that happens in the universe makes any sense whatsoever. Well, I don't think it needs to be there. I don't think anyone wants arguments about trade policy in their Star Wars, <laughs> especially when you're making arguments. And I was at the Seattle International Film Festival back in 2001. And there was a panel that I got to see the last 20 minutes of. And one of the producers of Star Wars was there. Mm. And of course, somebody got in line and started railing on Phantom Menace. (laughs) And this producer used this excuse that actually angered me. I wasn't angry before like this fan was, but I became angry when he says, oh, it's just a kid's movie. And I was Mm. just like thinking, you know, fuck you. Kids love trade embargoes. Kids <laughs> love trade trade policy. They love arguing about That's why most kids' movies from that era were about WTO. <laughs> they love it. They love arguing about tariffs. They love arguing... <laughs> Protectionism. Oh, yeah. They, you know. just, they love duking it out. That's why like, there's all these kids' movies about Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan. 
Yeah, it's it's ridiculous that we have these sorts of discussions because it doesn't feel like a kid's movie. And it certainly doesn't feel like a kid's movie in the third one where Anakin's being set on fire after all of his limbs have been chopped off. Sure. It feels like an excuse. But on the other hand, let's say that it was a kid's movie. It's kind of an insult to say, well, kids can afford to have crap. That we're not going to put effort into a kid's movie. And you look at things like the Pixar films. And those work as adult movies, too, but they're all ages movies is the term I like to use because they're appropriate for everyone, every audience. There's nothing in there objectionable for a kid, but there's still a story in there that grows up as you do, that you pull more out of it as you grow Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't think Star Wars needed to have the political background to it is that what was the politics of the original trilogy? These guys are bullies and they're mean and they blow up planets Mm -hmm. and we don't want them running our government. So we're going to fight back. And that was about as complex as it got. And I think that making it murky and making it more complex and and have this conspiracy story, because then you really look at the original trilogy, it's basically a giant conspiracy for one man to make himself the emperor. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone really wanted that. A criticism I've seen by David Brin recently has been that the moral of the new trilogy is that you can't trust democracy. (laughs) Right, right. And certainly not when, you know, again, a CGI cartoon rabbit can become a senator (laughs) and pass sweeping legislation. That was a part that really scares me. I don't think think George Lucas understands parliamentary procedure. I just don't think he does. That aside, I mean, we don't want to just dive onto the dog pile here. Uh You know, whatever criticism we can lump on Lucas, let's say a couple good things about him. One, he's got a good relationship with fans. That sure. I don't know how many fan films exist out there, whether it's troops or... Lucas could sue the shit out of these people. He could destroy them legally, but he doesn't. Not only that, he encourages people to make fan films. He provides them with the sound effects from his movies to make their fan films better. Right. I guess it's good to be uh, praising him for doing nothing. That's nice. Well, no, it's not just he, doing nothing. He could. He could he, you know, obviously, he could be more of a dick. And and I'll relent. I'll uh, I'll take your point, Mike. And I think that the best part about Star Wars ongoing as it is is the fact that the universe is now broad enough, and other people do this professionally as licensed works and unlicensed works have a huge reign to be able to tell stories in that universe. Well, not just that. They don't have to be somebody that gets hired by Lucasfilm to yes. do it. Which is that yeah. you have groups like the Five O First Legion who put an amazing amount of work in into the stuff that they do. I mean, just to create screen-accurate representations of the armor and clothing that are used in the movies. And there are people who make a lot of money creating these things, or at least parts of these things. He could sue them into oblivion. And that's not a small thing. It's not just that he's not doing anything. He is aware of people making money off of his work, but he understands where all of that work that they're putting into it comes from. It comes from love of his stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, he could destroy them. He could bankrupt countless people But instead, he actually offers them things so that they can display their love of his worlds that he's created even better. Right. We saw this early in the Harry Potter universe becoming a fandom. Children were getting cease and desist letters (laughs) over their websites that they were putting together. And, you know, eventually that kind of thing stopped. But it's pretty easy for uh, owners of these franchises to start getting a little, to just start acting on their own and start really squashing the love that we all have for these these universes. Uh, I think it is amazing. Yeah. There was a daycare center a few years ago that had unauthorized pictures of like Lion King characters, Disney characters that are plastered on the walls. Disney's lawyers came down on them like the hammer of God. (laughs) And they were basically sued into pulling all that stuff down. Of course, you know, other companies will take advantage of that. 
um, Hanna-Barbera said, you can use all of our characters for free. Hmm. It's a great opportunity to look good. See, it's not like Lucas is responding to someone else being an asshole. He's just not being an asshole in the first place, Mm. where being an asshole is the default setting for owning a corporate media empire. Hmm. And Lucasfilm is known for being Sue Happy. They are very protective of their of their property, and they always have been. And particularly in the 80s and 90s, uh, cease and desist letters went out like crazy, especially once the internet really became a thing. Cease and desist was all over the place. Um, but I think you're absolutely right about his relationship with the fans because he chooses, especially in terms of like the 501st Legion, to allow this to occur. There's agreements between the club and, and Lucasfilm. You know, there's no lightsaber fighting, for instance, in public. They can't openly sell things, you know, that sort of stuff. They have to represent Star Wars in a positive light. It's also a charity organization um, officially. So a lot of good is done that way. It helps spread the awareness of Star Wars, love of Star Wars, and associate it with good works. At Celebration 6, I read there was a conversation between George Lucas and Disney President Bob Iger where they were looking at all the 501st troopers that were there at the big dinner that night. And Lucas was explaining to him the benefit of this. So he definitely sees the benefit of that. He allows that. And so far, Disney has continued in that vein with Lucasfilm. And Disney is one of the most litigious companies in the world. Absolutely. So I think that's a good thing. And right. I, It's a short-sighted thing that I think a lot of these companies do. People that they are slapping down are the people who love their products the most, the people who are going to sink their money into those products the most, the, the people who may be selling or producing Stormtrooper armor over the internet are also the people that are going to be buying a lot of the officially licensed Lucasfilm stuff. Not only does George Lucas realize that and realize that he doesn't want to have this hate relationship with the people who love his stuff, I mean, he does that well enough with the re-releases of the original trilogy with special effects in them. This is his legacy, and he doesn't want to be known as maybe an asshole. One thing that we haven't mentioned, Mike, and I think that it needs to be aired out here, is Lucas doesn't control Star Wars anymore. Mm -hmm. Now Lucas has passed that on, the rights to make films at least, and and obviously the games and all the other stuff, to be a new breed where he doesn't have to do his rubber stamp to get it out. And being a huge Star Trek fan, as any listeners of this podcast would know, I was none too happy necessarily with the way that J.J. Abrams took it. And I'm wondering from people who are diehard Star Wars fans, if you have a similar concern about where Episode 7 will go being under the helm of a new studio, a new director, and uh, presumably a whole new creative staff. I want more Star Wars always, every single day, all the time. Uh, <laughs> you know, I play the MMO, the the massive multiplayer game that's out right now, Star Wars The Old Republic, and I run a tabletop set in the Sith Academy on Korriban playing a Dungeons & Dragons-style game with all my friends. There's really n- very few moments in my life I don't want filled with new Star Wars stuff all the time. <laughs> we'll see. Disney's not my favorite company, but if it means getting more Star Wars, then, you know, I'm willing to subject my mind to things that (laughs) I may not like. (laughs) I just want more Star Wars in my life. I'm sorry. I don't think I'm very critical (laughs) in that sense. I can say one thing in Disney's favor. I can try to say something nice about the evil corporate juggernaut is that they do have a tendency to leave their licensed products that they purchase like Marvel or Pixar largely alone and let those people continue to create under their own umbrella. They could have simply just clamped down on the Marvel movies once they bought them because they bought them in the middle of that first cycle of films that coalesced in Avengers. Mm -hmm. But they still allowed the studio to hire Joss Whedon, who 
to be quite frank, was not a proven box office guy. Right. And give him the climax of this group of films, the one that was the big gamble, that we can start making movies five years in advance to lead up to this big movie that's going to be our big blockbuster. And then we're going to give that big movie to this guy who has a cult fan base, but has never been a successful big screen movie. Mm. And they went ahead with it anyways. And they kept their hands off and said, we trust you to do this. There is a reason we bought you in the first place. And it was because of what you were doing. And the same thing happening with Pixar is they didn't just immediately swoop in. They're like, you guys make great movies that make us a lot of money. Keep doing that. Mm -hmm. So I have to imagine that with Lucasfilm, they're going to have a similar approach, which is you guys go do your thing. We'll fund you. We like what you do. We want to own this intellectual property group. We love Star Wars. Go for it. Do it. Make us some money. Well, I think you're right. Like in the case of Pixar, you know, John Lasseter is still very involved with Pixar and they didn't look to get rid of John Lasseter and put their own person in. They kept Pixar as its own property. And likewise with Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy, who was Lucas's lieutenant, his, his best lieutenant, I should say, running the show. And it's really, Disney is not that involved, is my understanding. They're, you know, they know what's going on and they're making plans, you know, how, do, how can we exploit this? But I think that they're looking to make a good quality bunch of Star Wars movies. So, but beyond that, though, I mean, the, the important part is, so if we've established that Disney will probably be a, a little hands-off because they know that they could do better, they get the merchandise rights, they're going to make all the toy money. Right. It's cool. Give it to somebody else. Give it to a whole new team. But what do you expect from the actual content of the movie? How do you expect that's going to play out? The, it's the the expectations on this are even much higher than they would have been for Phantom Menace because now this has to try to, as we've talked about before, Mike, return to form. Well, not just return to form, but to redeem and save Star yeah. Wars. You're right. That really is what it needs to be. But it sounds like the fact that they're going to be making more films than just the three 789, you know, they're doing some kind of spin-off stuff with individual characters. I think they're trying to cover all the bases or make sure at least, you know, somewhere in there they're going to succeed at something if they just make enough movies. <laughs> I don't know. It kind of almost looks like the same sort of strategy they did with the Marvel movies where they're just like, okay, and and so and so gets his movie and Captain America and then we'll bring them all together a little bit and we'll see what happens. I'm concerned about casting and what kind of directors they pick, but you know, I don't know. That's my expectation. My expectation is that they're going to use the uh, kitchen sink approach, really. As far as content goes, I have a certain amount of apprehension, to be sure, <laughs> but I'm also really excited. You know, I have mixed feelings about J.J. Abrams. There's things that I really like that J.J. Abrams has done, and there's things that, are, you know, there's nothing that I hate. But uh, I was just watching Lost before I came in. There was a marathon on this morning I was watching, and, 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 and I remember how much I love that. But Abrams loved Star Wars growing up. And to me, that's very important, that you have somebody that loves Star Wars. I didn't feel like George Lucas loved Star Wars when he made those prequels. Mm. Well, that also is a very interesting question. Would everyone agree that the best Star Wars was the Star Wars that had the least Lucas and therefore the fewest fans? You're talking about Empire Strikes Back? And Kirshner and um, Mark Well, Rand, well Mark I think Rand. that's kind of what we're getting back to, is taking Lucas into a position where he's the visionary guy on top who comes up with ideas and then gets other people to implement them. And I think that's always the best position for him to be in. And I think that given that we're getting all of these different voices into Star Wars, I'm optimistic about it. I don't go into it with the ceiling of dread that I used to have. And I think part of it is the expectations of these fans is that there really is no group of fans except maybe Trekkies who bring this much organized passion into the lead up to something being released. That was one of the things that I had is that I for a long time couldn't enjoy 
watching Star Wars, that Star Wars was just something that was dead to me, and it was because of these prequels. <laughs> I'd really like to talk a bit about the Red Letter Media reviews, because those things really acted in a lot of ways as a means of purging a lot of the venom in my system, hmm. that I got a lot of the anger out of it and could get back to just loving original Star Wars. And I went back and rewatched the original trilogy, the theatrical versions recently, and they're really good. And I found, you know what? I do like this stuff. And not only that, I find out there's going to be more and it's going to be made by different people. So there's a sense of optimism I have that I didn't have before. And if you guys haven't seen the Red Letter Media Reviews, I would recommend them very, very highly. This is a film company based out of Milwaukee run by a guy named Mike Slaclasa, who did these 70-minute feature-length reviews about why these films failed. Not just like a fan rant, not just a nerd rant, but like a film rant saying, this is what makes a good movie, this is what makes a bad movie. And they actually use the example of the original Star Wars trilogy in terms of what is a protagonist, what is a character, what is a character arc, what is a story, what makes something a good or compelling story, and why do these new movies fail to meet that bar? And once I got a lot of that out of my system, I wasn't as angry at The Phantom Menace as I was before. I mean, I thought they were fucking hilarious, for one. Interestingly enough, those had a way of exposing some of the sort of weird niggling problems that people had maybe that they couldn't actually articulate. They right. couldn't express of why why those characters didn't make any sense. They didn't make any sense for some reason, and you couldn't really put it down. And, and they've it's funny, they have become the foundation of the argument against the prequels, or at least defining what was lacking about them. I don't have a dog in this fight, really. I, we know that I'm more of a Trekkie. We've been burned by J.J. Abrams, and so now I'm just looking forward to drinking the sweet, sweet, butthurt tears of Star Wars fans as their precious franchise <laughs> gets ripped apart, <laughs> ripped from limb to limb by J.J. Abrams. And then you will all be coming crying back to us Trekkies and saying, why didn't we listen? Why? That's what I'm looking forward to. So it's just schadenfreude. Total schadenfreude. <laughs> Doesn't that assume that these groups are mutually exclusive? Ah, uh, well. <laughs> There's a lot more overlap than I think people admit. Sure, I think course. that when you really look at, at nerd fun stuff, it's not a mutually exclusive thing. Right. You can like more than one thing. I mean, I'm not primarily a Star Wars fan, but Star Wars was undeniably a huge part of my childhood right. growing up. You know, I'm not such a huge Star Wars fan, but I would say... I do love a lot of things about Star Wars. For example, some of the coolest video games that I've ever played were based in the Star Wars universe. Just to know that, that the fact that that's there and the potential to do that again is there makes me optimistic about the franchise. The movies are a different story, however. I feel like I have no dog in that fight whatsoever, and I feel like there's going to be this pervasive sense of, and, and now, after, after being scorned for a prequel trilogy, fanboy Stockholm Syndrome, where people are going to go into Seven just like they did with Star Trek, and then come out of it being robbed in all of those subconscious ways that like the prequel was, and say, but we hope for it, and it's still good, somehow it's still good, because if you've put too much of your life and your effort and too much, too much of yourself into thinking that it's going to be awesome and it doesn't, then you're really going to bend over backwards. I think that's a part of it. And I saw that in the People versus George Lucas with fans talking about it. I mean, Todd, you were talking about seeing The Phantom Menace 16 times in the theater. And you went in saying that this doesn't really feel like a movie. And I think maybe that's how we tried to internalize this. We had tried to <laughs> reconcile our love with this thing, with this thing that was just created and wanting to love it really, really badly. That we just kept going back on, maybe I just got it wrong. Maybe there's something I didn't see. Maybe I'll get it this time. But Todd is doesn't, and you're obviously an enormous fan, but you are not making retcon crazy excuses for the 
things that are lacking in the movies. You're not at all. But what I'm saying is, is that this will end up happening. And, and I think because people want the redemption now that George Lucas is out of the picture, they'll want it so much that we're going to accept a much lower quality movie because it won't be George Lucas. And finally, we'll be able to love it again. There's no denying that George Lucas owns the right to Star Wars and Indiana Jones until he sold them to Disney. So he can legally do with them whatever he pleased. I think there's a different sort of fan ownership that we're seeing that's coming out of the backlash. And that's the stuff I find really fascinating. People feeling a sense of ownership of the things that they love. People feeling attachment to it because it played a role in them growing up, that they have these deep memories attached to it. Do you think that George Lucas has any obligation to that fan ownership when he goes back and changes his movies? Well, there's the old argument about any art form, which is once you release it, it belongs to the audience. But one thing I think is really important to understand about George Lucas is that fundamentally, this is a a very independent guy. This is a guy that couldn't stand the Hollywood system. He was an outsider before he was in it. He was an outsider while he was in it. And he clearly is an outsider now. He moved his entire operations far away, reasonably close so that he could get what he needed to get, but far enough that he was detached from Hollywood. And he did that long ago. He set up that huge camp as a Skywalker ranch. And he doesn't like people telling him what to do. He doesn't like people owning things. And I think we see that spirit of independence has remained with him. I think at times it's become a spirit of control. But that spirit of independence, you have to understand that at least I, I've, I've made peace with this by understanding that as somebody who creates this stuff, to have the audience feel such a sense of ownership like so many of us do really makes him beholden to that, to answer your question. And I don't think somebody like George Lucas with that strong spirit of independence is going to feel comfortable with that. I think he's going to make Greedo shoot first. Ryan? I think he's got the right to do what he wants with his things, his toys. I just don't think that it's the right thing to do ethically. I think there's a big difference between what somebody can do and what they should do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just so ironic that this guy who fought against the colorization of movies and really looked like sort of a hippie guy and based the Jedi so much on samurai and uh, claims to be a Methodist Buddhist, that that guy would be <laughs> willing to change these things up in such idiotic ways. You would hope he would have done better, but well, he's got the right to do it. Well, here's what I think about this. If I'm to look back at the legacy of George Lucas, and especially the Star Wars universe as be what he will be known for more than anything else, I would argue, I think it's great. I mean, I think Darth Vader is probably one of the most recognized film characters that's ever been made. And I think Star Wars will live on for as long as there is human civilization and or not nuclear apocalypse. However, when I look at the legacy of Star Wars, I don't see a single guy who is an auteur who threw everything together. I see Ralph McQuarrie, who did the concept art that basically created the vision of the the look of the universe. John Williams, who scored the universe. John Dykstra and ILM, who created what the universe looked like as far as the space battles. And then, of course, Ben Burt, who the sound effects and tied that all together. I think those four men, more so than Lucas himself, created that legacy that everything was built upon there. And so in as much as film directors and writer directors do have a large amount of control, I think that it's a larger legacy. And so when I see George Lucas erasing these works of original people, like, for example, the actor who did Boba Fett's voice now doesn't exist in the original trilogy. That guy's work, the one role that he was known the most for, being the voice of a character behind a mask in a sci-fi movie, is now gone to history. And I think there's something to be to answer for that. 
it was a collaboration. There were a lot of people's works. And so he can't say that he has total right to change it in any way he wants to because it's not all his. To play devil's advocate here, this is the one question that kept coming back to me. And it was the one thing that almost has me defending Lucas, even if I don't like the results of the work that he's doing, Mm. the results of the changes that he's making. Does an artist not have the right to do what they want, even if everybody hates it? He wasn't the sole artist, though. That's why this argument, I think, is a false argument, because it doesn't take into consideration the fact that it's not just him. It isn't just him. I understand that, but I'm saying, in writing these prequels, he Mm. wrote the script. He's the one who came up with this story that everyone built stuff off of. And that core script is really bad. Giving an audience exactly what they want, exactly the way they like it, as Neil Gaiman once put it, just makes art derivative and stagnant. Hmm. You look at the example of George R.R. Martin, who writes the Game of Thrones series. A Game of Thrones is interesting in the fact that it subverts a lot of fan expectations and in fact does things that specifically piss many of its fans off. They're done in very skillful ways. They're done in ways that make the story better, that make the characters better, and lead it in ways that you don't expect. And you find you're reading a better story in the aftermath of these huge, shocking, non-fan-pleasing events. Mm -hmm. What I wonder is, doesn't George Lucas also have the right to take these sorts of risks? I think he does. I don't always like, in fact, most of the time, I don't like the risks that he's taking. And my argument earlier, what I said about the prequel trilogy is that I felt like he doesn't love Star Wars when he makes those movies. I don't feel like the risks he's making there are risks as an artist so much as some sort of mogul. Mm. I think it's very respectable that he sold Star Wars because now we can have Star Wars material made by people that love Star Wars with a lot of collaboration so that maybe you'll have somebody that's visionary like Macquarie involved at some point in in something. Probably not, but (laughs) you'd like to think that there will be that contribution that you're not going to have when you have your Rick McCallums standing by telling you how great everything is. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, you know, he didn't do it to make money. I mean, what did he do with that money? He gave it to charity. That's true. Again, it's so easy to want to paint somebody as a villain. I mean, we had this conversation. When we talked about Star Trek in our first episode, we talked about the handover when Gene Roddenberry died. The entire franchise was handed over to Rick Berman and Braga. and Pillar first. Rick Berman, Michael Pillar. Michael Pillar. But you had this handover to these new guys, but you could actually just hold up those guys and say, those are the guys who betrayed the vision. They betrayed the Star Trek revolution, <laughs> and they must be destroyed. <laughs> it, it's easy to find a villain, but when you look at the Star Wars situation, this was the guy who created it that created the movies that you felt betrayed by. This wasn't a third party that came, took over the company, and made a bunch of crap. This was the guy who you loved as a kid. This is the guy who brought down these movies on stone tablets from the mountain and gave you this great gift. And you have all of these fond memories, not just of Star Wars, but of George Lucas himself. And to feel betrayed by that, it's really interesting. So the real question is, now that George Lucas is out of the picture, at best he's a consultant, figurehead, in the same way that Stan Lee is to Marvel Comics, where he doesn't have a job other than to be, I'm the guy who created all this stuff, and I want to continue to be associated with it. Mm. So now that he's that guy, now that he's now Star Wars' Stan Lee, what is his legacy and what should his legacy be? (laughs) I mean, I tend to agree that he really isn't a fan anymore. (laughs) And it would be nice if all this stuff were put together by fans, and it may be in that direction now under Disney. So I would prefer he just sort of disappeared. I mean, he's fairly hands-off with the expanded universe has so much more fiction to it than just these movies 
he has always had a pretty light hand with it. And I think that he can just move into that with the movies as well. I don't think that that's a problem. And, you know, some of the best Star Wars things have been done outside of the movies, honestly. I mean, if you're talking about, like, the Timothy Zahn novels or the fact that the massive multiplayer game is one of the first to really allow homosexual relations to happen in (laughs) video games. There are boundaries being pushed and amazing stories being told, and Lucas doesn't have to have his hands in it, honestly. So what do you want his legacy to be going forward, that when 10 years down the line we say, George Lucas, whatever happened to him, what do you think of George Lucas? What do you want that answer to be? I would like it to be someone who finally realized that he no longer needed to be part of that empire. I really think that the six movies we have right now are the story of George Lucas falling to the dark side and becoming corporate. (laughs) I would like him to do what Darth Vader did and uh, throw an old man down a shaft. (laughs) Throw a guy down a shaft and be like, you know what? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I served that guy for too long. I'm done. I'm not going to run this empire anymore. And I'm going to go just be this ghost that waves at you. (laughs) I, I think that's absolutely fair. At the same time, I think as far as his legacy goes, you know, let's not forget that he's done a lot more than just Star Wars. Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of my favorite movies of all time. American Graffiti, you know, we mentioned earlier, is an amazing movie. And I'm sure that the, you know, everybody in Hollywood recognizes that and always will. It will be a classic. His um, special effects house, ILM, you know, Skywalker Sound, the THX certification, his effect, his impact on the movie business, I think is his true legacy. As far as George Lucas's legacy is concerned, I think I just want them to play the original Star Wars trilogy and all three of the original Indiana Jones movies in their original form, and we can forget about the rest of the... And at THX 113, it's good. And we can just forget about the rest and not even worry about the prequels anymore. We can just never talk about them, see them, reference them, or even for it to go through our brain. That's what I want George Lucas's legacy to be. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with High Point Low Point. Fire and Water Podcast, celebrating Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, and Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. Available Mondays on AquamanShrine.com and FirestormFan.com. Fan the flame and ride the wave. I'm Rich Lyons. I'm Deanna Joy Lyons. After 20 years behind the pulpit, I lost my faith. After a lifetime of trying to make sense of religion, I realized I never had any faith. Where to turn, what to do. Shunned, abandoned, rejected, cut off, post-traumatic stress. Now there is help. Join us on the Living After Faith podcast. Living After Faith. Come laugh with me. So we are back and we are going to do high point, low point. We are going to look at the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel when it comes to George Lucas. I'm going to start with you, Ryan. Where is George Lucas at his absolute worst? Well, (laughs) for me, it is the song Jedi Rocks. Uh, (laughs) It was was in the 1997 re-release of Return of the Jedi. (sighs) It's performed by... Joe Yauza, <laughs> along with the Max Rebo Band in Jabba's Palace. And it is 
the worst thing in all of Star Wars canon. Um, and the reason why I bring it up is that it's the tipping point. Honestly, felt like we could trust him on some level until that exact moment. <laughs> Part of it's for me that Return is such an important movie because it was the first one I saw. But I think until that point in 1997, we did not realize that he was going to ruin things. And so the era before Jedi Rocks <laughs> is an era in which I think Lucas was taking care of things. And then after it is when things kind of went downhill. So if I was going to say, show us on the Bantha doll where George <laughs> right. Lucas touched your childhood, you would say Jedi Rocks. <laughs> it's Jedi Rocks. <laughs> so that's a low point. Todd, what do you say about it? what is the low point of George Lucas? I've given a lot of thought to this. You and I were talking about this the other day. And I wanted to say the, the Ewoks special. Hmm. that he did the hmm. Ewoks movie I should say and I think there were two of them with the there. diabetes guy right was that hit Wilford Brimley I don't think it was Wilford Brimley wasn't he in that it was an old guy with glasses which was odd it but... was Wilford Brimley <laughs> look it up you could be right I haven't seen it since it was on ABC as <laughs> I think the first time but it, to me that potentially is the low point for that because that you talk about the tipping point but really there were so many indicators prior to that of where he was going things that he wouldn't dare do in Empire you see these things in Jedi. There's, what, the two burp jokes in, yes. in Jedi. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have a beef with the Ewoks. I don't. But you see the, the cutesy, the very overt, let's get a laugh here, which, believe me, the audience was laughing. But those sorts of <laughs> things, you see uh, a lot of really shallowness. You know, when uh, they're having the meeting about attacking the second Death Star, and uh, Luke walks in, and the meeting just stops. <laughs> you know like that's that's directly that's the sort of stuff the red letter media guys would have a field day with in the in the prequels that is kind of a sitcom moment where a beloved character walks in and the audience goes yeah <laughs> yeah it is and everything stops like meeting adjourned every time i watch that it really bugs me when you look at that there's a lot of indicators and they really are compounded i mean we talk about the star wars holiday special but really that wasn't intended to be taken very seriously that was a marketing thing you know oh, thank goodness right you know what i mean whereas the ewoks movie this is like, okay, let's do Star Wars for kids. Let's do a special for it. And everybody tuned in to watch that thing. Everybody, not just kids. Everybody watched that thing. It's like, hey, here's the future. Here's what I'm going to do. So I think that's the low point for him. I was going to say the holiday special, but I think that's too easy. That's, that's the lowest of the low-hanging fruit. It's on the ground and it's rotten already. I would say that Lucas and the the sort of the complete 180 that he did with testifying in front of Congress about the cultural heritage of our movies and then his dogged attempts to try to keep the original theatrical versions out of the National Film Registry. I was reading more about this the other day. Apparently, what's really fucked up and disappointing about the National Film Registry and the Library of Congress is that the Library of Congress and the Registry, they don't actually own their prints, and nor do they really have the ability to freely exhibit those in any real way. They're just It's just archival. There's this strange ownership situation with the film studios that own it that means that the Library of Congress can't actually do anything with it. It just sort of sits there. They're allowed to have a copy that they don't own, that they sit in a hermetically sealed rooms that will supposedly be the treasure for the future, but they're not allowed to do anything for it. And they also, they're not empowered to fight back against the people who own the films for doing all the crazy stuff, like recalling them and destroying them, which is what Lucas wanted to do with his special editions. But I want to read this because uh, this is an excerpt from when Lucas testified in front of Congress in 89, I want to say. People who alter or destroy works of art and our cultural heritage for profit or as an exercise of power are barbarians, and the laws of the United States continue to contone this behavior. History will surely classify us as a barbaric society. And that was for the colorization of films by Ted Turner. 
how much of, a, of an indictment of himself is that to have essentially called his future self a barbarian for wanting to destroy the cultural history for his own profit or for his own ego? We give artists an amazing amount of leeway in our society to be able to weather storms, do things that are illegal, and yet come back in our good graces. And this guy is betraying his, the absolute principles of being an artist, which is apparently wants to uphold the artist's right to do anything except for he doesn't want the rules to apply to him. And the amount of hypocrisy is just astounding to me. So I don't... I think after that point, that behavior just shows that Lucas could not have got any better after that point. He totally and completely lost his direction as an artist. I was originally thinking about saying Phantom Menace because of the disappointment that followed. I could go meta and talk about the fan backlash and how insane it looks. But I think for me, these are all things that I can ignore, that I can choose not to look at Phantom Menace. I don't buy it on DVD. I don't watch it. I can change the channel if I turn on HBO when it's playing. These are all things that I can ignore. And I think that's something that I've learned to do. I've learned to ignore things I don't like. And I'm a comic book fan, and we're famous for harping on a bad story for years and years and getting so angry, where the truth is you can really just look at something else for a while. The truth is it's easy to get angry at Howard the Duck. It's easy to get angry at the Holiday Special and the Ewok Specials. But for me, it's the thing that I can't ignore, which is that it's impossible for me to buy a copy of the original theatrical Star Wars trilogy in the current format, which is DVD or Blu-ray. And I think that's a problem. I'm hoping that's something that'll change now that Disney buys it. And there's obviously a market for it. It was Lucas for a long time basically telling this huge market that wanted to buy this product that you can't have it, that I'm going to continue to put out new and new and new and new versions of it. And I'm going to put more and more special effects that make it feel more like that trilogy of films that you guys don't like. Hmm. And the fact that I can't have it at all and that I have to be almost like protecting my VHS copies of the original trilogies like I'm fucking Gollum now (laughs) is something that is really disturbing to me. And I think that's really his low point is can do all your changes as long as you do them over there but let me have this thing that i did grow up loving let me Mm. have that Mm. and you can do whatever the hell you want over there there's something that's really orwellian about the idea that he wants that past to be completely erased you're right you're right the you know we talk about retconning all the time and what we see with lucas is an attempt to retcon history Mm. real history it's the same thing i think that has carried over it's not just isolated to lucas i mean like you said you can ignore certain things you could ignore all of star wars and lucasfilm if you want but it it carries over it's bigger than that it's the same thing i think peter jackson did with the lord of the rings movies you Mm. know we all sat for hours in the theaters and liked the movies and then when he releases the dvds suddenly they're so much better than we remember even because he's put in the scenes that really should have been in there in the first place Mm. And so he's retconning that historical memory. We're not going to remember that that scene wasn't in. It's true. Yeah. So it carries over and it's not just isolated to them. It's going to continue with filmmakers because it's so easy to do that. Let's pull ourselves out of the gutter. <gasps> yeah. Just <sighs> brush all the Phantom Menace off of, your, <laughs> off of your legs and waist. And let's look at what it is that we love most about what George Lucas is and what he's done. Ryan, what is the high point of George Lucas in his work? I've thought about this a lot, and it's really hard not to be sort of on the nose with it and say the making of Star Wars, the first one. At one point, he's got 200-page script, and he's winnowing that down into an actual usable script and shopping around, and none of the companies want to make this thing until finally Fox is okay with it. And they're using an artist, these beautiful paintings to make it look nicer and, and really show off what it could be. I mean, I think that at that moment, he was an idealistic artist with a vision 
that he was really trying to find. And the inspirations that it sounds like went into it were admirable. He really seemed like an eclectic, interesting artist and really stuck to his guns and went out there and made this beautiful thing that's one of the most important pieces of art, I think, in the 20th century. That's got to be the high point right there is that moment when Star Wars came out. I'll kind of echo what Ryan said. I think that the moment up until just before Special Edition New Hope was released was probably where the excitement, the enthusiasm, and the most of the optimism for Star Wars as a huge cultural force that would move forward was so heightened. I mean, the extended universe was there, the video games were coming out, all of these amazing things were happening, and George Lucas was, was going to release them. That was actually the very first time that I saw the New Hope 4 and 5 in theaters, which is an amazing opportunity because these days you can see everything. The Up until the moment that everyone saw the changes, everyone saw Han Solo step over Jabba the Hutt's tail unnecessarily in a strange way with a funny noise and a look on his face. Just right before everyone saw that, when everyone was thinking, yes, they're being released again. This is so amazing. We can love it again. That was at the high point. That was when everyone was in love with it, when everyone had the highest hopes for it. And it's sad that it had to go from there. But I remember palpably being so excited by Star Wars in general and wanting to go back and watch stuff that I hadn't seen seen in five or six years captain eo (laughs) 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 well i think for me it's the making of empire strikes back because as we talked about he had the the insight to really i mean he could see that he needed to step back more and he had an excellent director this really despite what he will again retcon this is really it was between a new hope and empire obviously where he did his joseph campbell research Mm. where he really became interested in the mythology of it and not just this story that he hashed together which turned out to be really good but he was really going for a, a larger thematic arc there and in doing so he's made i think a really flawless movie that most people i think most star wars fans will agree is an incredibly strong film and probably the best of any of his movies I think there's like not a single frame that's out of place in Empire Strikes Back. That's how tight it is. Right. I love Star Wars. Lots of problems in Star Wars. I love Jedi. Lots of problems in Jedi. Empire is one of those movies that you are hard-pressed to find flaws with, where there's no problems with composition or anything. It's just a beautifully made movie. I'm going to double down on that and say that that's my high point as well, is Empire. Like I said, there was this long period of time where I just didn't want to watch Star Wars. I didn't want to look at it. Everything felt phantom menacey, and I just didn't want to touch it. Everything felt artificial, like everyone's against a blue screen. And then I rewatched Empire Strikes Back in the original trilogy about a year ago, and I remembered why I loved this in the first place. And one of the things that I love about Empire is how grounded these fantastical worlds really are, that when Luke is on Hoth and he has to communicate with Han, who's on another Tauntaun far away, he actually has to brush snow that's packed in on the communicator on his arm. And it was those little touches like that The truth is, is the more fantastical a world is, the more grounded it has to be in some kind of reality. That's what I love about the Lord of the Rings films, is that the Lord of the Rings films remember that put a little dirt and dead leaves on Frodo's cloak. Remember to to have characters walk through an actual forest and get dirty and have a little dirt under their fingernails. And little touches like that is really what made it that you believed the world of Empire Strikes Back so completely. 
and so many of the visuals stick with you to this day. Cloud City is a real place. The chamber where Han is frozen in carbonite, just the blue and orange colors that come in through that, the lightsaber fight, everything feels like fantastical things happening in a fantastical world that is tangible and real. The characters go through arcs. I mean, if you really look at the plot of Empire Strikes Back, it is so simple. It's Luke going to train to be a Jedi with Yoda, and Han and Leia have to escape from the Empire. That's the whole plot of the movie. But they make it so exciting. They make the bad guys feel so dangerous. They make the odds feel so insurmountable. Everything in that movie just absolutely works. That's the best lightsaber fight in any of the Star Wars movies because it feels really dangerous. It feels like Darth Vader is just toying with this guy. He's not even using both hands to hold his lightsaber. And there's this sense of, well, what'll happen when he gets sick of playing with this kid? Luke has no chance in this fight. And he's going up against the guy that he thinks killed his dad. What I love about that movie is just how scary the Empire and especially Darth Vader come across. And there was one moment that was my favorite character bit in probably the entire Star Wars trilogy. And it was this moment where the Millennium Falcon has gone into the asteroid field and the Empire is coming in after them. And they have these huge capital ships that these things are going to destroy them. They're getting pelted. And Vader is in a conference call with his top guys. (laughs) And he's forcing them forward. And there's this moment where you see an asteroid nail the bridge area of one of the Star Destroyers. And that guy fizzles out. He's obviously just dead now. And Vader doesn't bat an eye. He doesn't care. He's like, I am obsessed. And the fact that nobody cares that this guy just died and probably hundreds and thousands of people, stormtroopers, pilots, whatever, are now dead. It makes this villain look so ruthless, so dangerous, and so obsessive in three seconds without making a big deal about it. But furthermore, in that, it's not the focal point of the scene. Not the camera doesn't move to it. You don't have different music for it. There isn't a reaction. Actually, in non-widescreen versions, you can't see the, the image of him fade out. And that's one of those touches that when you watch Spielberg's earlier movies, the same thing, you know, a reaction shot from an extra who was the bus driver or just standing around or something that really solidify those movies. They are the snow on the, on the comm link on the glove, you know. And I don't think he's ever recaptured that again. And I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that in the next collection of Star Wars movies, that we're going to get those little touches again. Those little pieces of joy and detail that make these fantastical worlds that we all love feel incredibly real. I want to thank you guys again for coming in for this panel. My name is Mike Gillis. Joining me again, Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Thank you for joining again. My pleasure. And Ryan Shaddock. Sure, thanks. And, of course, as always, in the Chewbacca seat, (laughs) Casey Doran. Thanks, Mike. So we're going to catch you guys next month. Take care. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our audio engineer was Rich Lyons. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. George Lucas didn't ruin my childhood. Fucking polio did.